0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Joyce Antler, the Samuel J. Lane Professor Emerita of American Jewish History and Culture at Brandeis University. Her book, Jewish Radical Feminism, Voices from the Women's Liberation Movement, published by New York University Press, is the topic of this show. Antler provides richly detailed biographies of known and unknown Jewish women, from Muth Firestone to Aviva Cantor, who were the backbone of the movement. Their backgrounds, often hidden from historical view and unrecognized, are brought to light. Many Jewish radical women emerged from the new left and went on to create local women-centered groups such as the Gang of Four, Boston Women's Health Collective, and Bread and Roses. How they navigated their experiences of being both Jewish and feminist provides insight into Jewish life and the relationship between religion, ethnic identity, and feminism. In their diversity from holding on to traditional faith-making room for feminism to those who pulled away to lead secular lives, they encountered anti-Semitism stereotypes and connections across differences. The book demonstrates the rich contribution of Jewish values and identity had on the women's liberation movement and how, in turn, they changed Jewish life in America. Here is my conversation with Joyce Antler. Let me introduce you to the author, Joyce Antler. Hello, Joyce. Hello. Hi, Lillian welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience your book is packed with so many interesting women that were part of the women's liberation movement and frankly uh, I was uh, was not familiar with a lot of them and I think that your audience will be very in uh, my audience and uh, who's going to be listening to this is going to be very interested in some of these women that are that for us are so obscure but they've been overlooked but we need to to dig them back out and you have done a Great job of that. So before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Jewish Radical Feminism.
1: Okay. Well, I'm an historian. I'm actually uh, recently retired from Brandeis University, where I taught for almost 40 years in the American Studies program and in the Women's Studies program, which I helped begin. And my interests really are the history of American women. And about five books ago, I turned my attention to the history of American Jewish women, which I felt was a field that was kind of underserved. And in in all of the research that I did, I felt I was in some ways an ambassador to the larger field of women's history, telling the stories, chronicling the history of American Jewish women. And so... Maybe about 20 years ago, I did a book called The Journey Home, How Jewish Women Shape Modern America, in which I told the story a little bit, just a teeny little bit of American Jewish women and radical feminism, maybe in three pages, 20 years ago. And I hoped that somebody would pick up and, and sort of, you know, make that story fuller. Well, that didn't happen. And so I turned my attention to this some years ago and came back and, and looked uh, rather intensively at uh, what I felt was before our eyes, but really not discussed, not discovered, and kind of reclaimed that history.
0: Now, tell us, uh, what is radical feminism for the audience who may not know what that is? And how is it different from liberal feminism?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, as the author, I think I have the uh, ability or the right to uh, choose my terms. And so I do distinguish liberal uh, and radical feminism. And they're both a part of second wave feminism that began in the 1960s. Some say it ended second wave feminism in the 70s. Some say the 80s. I like to carry it forward even a, uh, a little bit further. But liberal feminism is the feminism we associate with Betty Friedan and some of the women of the National Organization of Women, which was focused on um, economic and legal remedies for the subordination of women uh, intended to improve their access to uh, structures of society. Radical feminism, which we usually uh, connote as women's liberation, went further or went in a different direction and aimed to uproot the traditional structures and relationships of society. So not just gaining access to uh, roads that left women out, but changing them completely. Um, Over time, those two branches merged, liberal and radical feminism. But in the beginning, certainly in the late 60s and 1970s, you could distinguish between them.
0: Now, one thing that you talk about is how uh, many women who became radical feminists emerged from the from the new left. Many of them were red diaper babies and uh, they they emerged out of the new left to to become radical feminists. I want to uh, want to know why they did that. Why did why would they go that direction?
1: Why they uh, merged, you said, out of the new left and why they left the new left, as many of them did, many of them stayed. Well, I would begin by saying it wasn't easy. And at the moment that this happened, in the years that this happened, it was a source of uh, great uh, anxiety, angst even, uh, controversy, debates and soul searching, whether or not. Uh, Women should leave and begin uh, a movement of their own, an autonomous movement, as it was called. Um, Quite simply, if I had one word to give you a reason why this happened, that word would be misogyny and that unfortunately the women found that even amongst their allies and and closest colleagues in the new left, uh, male colleagues, there was a persistent and and often vitriolic misogyny, putting women down or, you know, not not giving uh, women their due, and that led women um, to finally... Uh, not all women but but a lot of women um go out on their own and there were you know particular events that i could point to that were kind of milestones on this journey to an autonomous movement. It didn't happen all of a sudden and it didn't happen without reflection. There were numerous essays that a lot of the new left women wrote, Vivian Rothstein, uh, Heather Booth, uh, Amy Castleman. A lot of the women that I talk about in my first chapter were amongst the uh, Chicago group. And there were many others um, who played a role in thinking this through.
0: Now, the radical feminist movement is is a big movement. Uh, there, it showed up in a lot of different places all over the country. Uh, how did Jewish women first become so prominent? I didn't realize how prominent they were in radical feminism, and why their Judaism was sort of not known or sort of hidden, invisible they were invisible as Jews but they were very visible in terms of leadership can you ex- uh, explain
1: why well th- those are very big questions and I, I can explain uh but it would take yeah, me a whole give let us me, some just let me say give us a little insight
0: Here, go just ahead. That you don't have to, i know that you whole you've written a whole book about it and there's a lot <laughs> there but it's i was truly really astounded at the how prominent
1: they were Well, I only look at a few cities, first of all. I look at some cities in the Northeast where Jewish women were prominent, New York, Chicago, Boston. So it wasn't the case all over. I think if we chose smaller cities or cities in other regions, you probably wouldn't find as many Jewish women. But nevertheless, these were important cities at the time. They were leaders in the radical feminist movement. So I think it's okay uh, to examine them. And um, why were they so prominent? Um, They were prominent, but This story really wasn't known. It wasn't even known to the people who I'm talking about. It was only really um, when I began uh, looking at this that uh, they were persuaded uh, that, in fact, there were other Jewish women along with them. So these were uh, population demographic facts that were very much under the radar. And I think, you know, you can – Uh, put forward uh, several reasons why Jewish women were involved in the radical social movements of the 1960s and the 70s. And other historians have done that. Uh, Jews were highly educated. They came from social justice traditions. Um, They had access to, uh, you know, social movement uh, triggers uh, more than other uh, folks, uh, f- for reasons, and they and they came together in friendship groups. That was a part of it. That still doesn't, you know, sort of tell us why. Um, say eight out of ten, eight out of eleven of some of these foundational collectives in these various cities happen to be Jewish. Uh, I don't think it, it gives us the full answer, and maybe that answer has to. Uh, look at some of the leadership characteristics and some of the, the values that these women held.
0: And one thing that you talk about, you talk about Jewish women, but that is that is not like one thing. You've got uh, Jewish women who identify very much secu- as secularists who have, you know, have an identity as Jew, as a Jew, but it's, you know, it's sort of thin. And then you've got Orthodox Jewish women who are, have a very strong, you know, religious aspect to their Judaism. Um, can you ex- explain, um, how, how the, the different, the different flavors of, of Jewishness, uh, that we're going to see in the, in this movement?
1: Yes, I would love to, uh, you know, begin to explain that. Uh, First, let me say that I divide my book into two parts. The first part, uh, where I uh, discuss maybe 20 or so uh, women's liberationists, as I call them, um, talks about women who did not explicitly identify themselves as Jewish. So they were found in collectives like Bread and Roses in Boston, Our Bodies, Ourselves, the Women's Health Book Collectives, Red Stockings in New York, That's the first part. The second part uh, is about the feminists who were self-identified explicitly as Jews. And they were part of such collectives as Eznat Nashrim, Chutzpah, Brooklyn Bridge. So they were Jewish. They were both secular Jews and religious Jews. So the distinction is not so much between brands and denominations of Jews, but between those who explicitly identified themselves as Jews in the movement and those who didn't. And uh, interestingly, uh, those two groups really did not um, usually encounter each other uh, the second group, the Jewishly identified feminists, did model themselves and were motivated by the women's liberationists. W- excuse me, but they didn't generally come in contact with them. Um, and I do want to say I had a conference where I brought together both groups of women. It was in 2011 uh, at New York University, and for many of them, you know, it was. Uh, jaw-dropping, uh, eye-opening uh, time where they met, you know, heroes of, of theirs, but they hadn't been in contact, these two groups. Now,
0: for, of the, the women who identified as Jews within the radical movement, how, what was the tension between, let's say, a universal vision of women's liberation versus the, the, their identity as Jewish
1: women? Well, you're asking me about those who did identify as Jewish. Yes. So would these be my my second group or the first group? Because there were women who identified as Jews who were women's liberationists.
0: Right, right. But I'm saying, how did they reconcile their Jewish identity okay. or their sense of identity with the universalist sort of uh, view of the, of the larger movement?
1: Right. So uh, some, you know— I tell the story of forty women, and there are forty different patterns, so um it would be reductionist to give you a simple answer to that rather than saying they did it in different ways. but I can give you some examples um yeah, give us some examples that would be good okay so um amongst the women who uh had a um i'd say a strong Jewish identity. Of the Chicago group were Heather Booth, the great organizer, um, and Vivian Rothstein, another great organizer, and um, those two women uh, so kind of kept their Jewish identity private. Uh, they were silent about it, not so much to hide it; it just didn't come into the landscape of what they did. Um, Heather, in the 1990s, began. Project Amos with Leonard Fine, who was also uh, a well-known Jewish uh, radical reformer. And so at that time in her life, it, it was present. But it was just simply, you know, two separate arenas of existence. Now, that was not the case for everyone. An example of somebody who's Jewishness was uh, very explicit, uh, was Esther Rome, who was a founding member of the Women's Health Book Collective in Boston, which later became known as Our Bodies, Ourselves. Esther was a deeply observant Jew. She kept kosher, she kept Shabbat, and everyone knew and respected her religiosity. Um, And in fact, her religiosity, her respect for the tradition was in some ways a glue for the rest of the collective. It was there, but it wasn't... um sort of uh, represented in the work that she did. Our Bodies, Ourselves was not about Jewish texts or Jewish discovery uh, at all. Although, in fact, one of the non-Jewish members of the collective says, Esther's dogged scholarship, you know, in some ways seemed like it was part of the Jewish tradition. It belongs in the Smithsonian. That's what founder Norma Swenson said about her. So these are examples of women's liberationists who were not members of Jewish collectives who uh, had a vision uh, or had values of Judaism that did not conflict with the universalist vision of um, sisterhood that was the center of women's liberation.
0: Now, one thing that you talk about a lot is the term uh, Jewish values. And I, uh, for the audience, mostly probably are not going to be Jewish people. Uh, What are Jewish values and how would they um, conflate or come together
1: with feminist values? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And I am very careful, I hope, to, um, you know, never really – uh, frame a particular set of uh ethical ideas As the Jewish values. I believe that Jewish values um, are amorphous. They mean different things to different people. They did at the time. Some values came from a some values that the women held and which inspired the women came from the secular tradition, say of Yiddish radicalism. As you said before, many were red diaper babies. Um, And some values came from a religious tradition that was handed down by family. Whether that was reform, conservative, orthodox, reconstructionist, or anything else. So there was a difference between uh, first uh, secular and religious values and ethics. And, you know, even within the traditional realm, uh, the women looked at values very differently. And it must be said, uh, many of them found the Jewish tradition wanting because they saw patriarchy front and center. This is what they wanted to change. Even those who identified them explicitly identified themselves as Jewish, didn't like this. And um, so there are all different kinds of values and ethics and guiding principles. But it was interesting when I when I spoke to different people, they uh, some of them could say, This was the prophetic imperative um, that I remembered, you know, from the time I was 15 and I went to synagogue and this was important to me, even though later on I became secular. So, uh, you know, interesting the way these legacies uh, linger and and motivate people.
0: So I'm I'm just kind of, because what I I got out of it just from reading your book was that the main prominent uh, Jewish value, if, you could, if, you, if we could find one, it would be just, a, a justice. And what that means, you know, people can decide what justice means in a different, different context, but the idea of the prophetic justice, and that that was a place where they felt that feminism, that feminism ultimately was about justice for women, and Jewish values would speak to that. Would you agree with that or not?
1: I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, these days we talk a lot about prophetic justice and social justice and to, to kind of lum and repair the world. And again... Uh, you know there was a spectrum of what this meant uh to people, but this was a generation that was involved not only in the women's movement but very much in the civil rights movement um and in the new left, women and men, you know to, to point out that a large proportion of uh those who went south um in the civil rights of white people who went south were Jewish, you know all disproportionate to their numbers in the population and and very many of the white women uh, were Jewish women. A lot of my women were involved in, you know, the uh, uh, the effort to, um, you know, desegregate the South. Uh, so, you know, social justice, yes, that was very important. Um, but also, you know, there was another history to Uh, The way in which the Jewish past and Jewish values uh, motivated these women. And, you know, so I I, maybe I should bring up the Holocaust as something that. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about
0: marginality, sort of the historical
1: marginality of
0: Jewish people would make them very sensitive to any form of marginalization, starting with
1: African-Americans. In the United States, yes, that's really an excellent point, and um, it it put these women in a uh, unusual position because at the time that many of them came of age uh, by the late '60s and the '70s, which is the scene of my book, Jews were doing pretty well as a population group in uh, America. And yet these women did feel, as you say, marginal, um, marginal as women as and marginal as Jews. And, um, the Holocaust lingered in the background. Many of them talked about the Holocaust. Many of them had direct experiences with anti-Semitism in the communities that they grew up, they feared it. And so this was, was, um, really present uh, in unusual ways. That was a surprise to me in doing the book. I wouldn't have thought that uh, the Holocaust and anti-Semitism was present as much as it was. You know, was pre- perhaps the uh, the negative side of the Jewish values we've just been talking about. Um, how did anti But played antisemitism- out, um, I think, creatively in helping them become activists. How did I
0: can antisemitism- give you an example if you'd like. Well, I wanted to ask you how anti-Semitism showed up in the movement, and it was was that a reason why maybe Jewish women were not, uh, you know, didn't bring their Judaism into the some of them some of them did not bring the Judaism into the movement because they were af- afraid of anti-Semitism, and how did it end up showing up in the movement anyway?
1: Yeah, that's another big question. Uh, Anti-Semitism was. Uh, under the surface, uh, the fear of anti-Semitism was under the surface. Um, and the first person who really told me about this was Naomi Weisstein of the Chicago uh uh, Women's Liberation Union, and she's the founder of Chicago Women's Liberation Rack Band, and a wonderful neuroscientist. Her picture is on the cover of my book, and sh- she said that one of the reasons that women uh, in the movement didn't identify as as uh, Jews was because there was a whiff of anti-Semitism. We never talked about it for a variety of reasons. For her, you know, the the um, sensitivity to the fact that They didn't want to make it seem as if Jews were dominating the movement, which was, you know, something that Jews were criticized for. Many Jewish women felt that their behavioral style, being dominant, being aggressive, uh, was also uh, often criticized. They were aware of that. Um, And those are two reasons. Uh, Certainly the universalist tenor of the movement was... um, you know, sort of in juxtaposition to attitudes about Jews that may have been negative. And it must be said, there was real anti-Semitism within the social movements of the 60s, including the women's movement. And and some of the women that I write about directly encountered that in the 60s and 70s and the 80s.
0: How did different women, Jewish women, uh, identify with Zionism? And this is sort of related to the anti-Semitism uh, fear. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? I'm thinking about Aviva Cantor.
1: Aviva Cantor, yes. Uh, Aviva Cantor was and is a um, uh, dynamic and and leading a uh, Jewish-identified, I would guess I'd call her uh, a secularist, who was very active in the uh, Jewish student network in the 60s and 70s. And she was a passionate Zionist, and she remains a passionate Zionist, uh, uh, loves Israel, and yet she found uh, In the women's movement, quite negative attitudes towards Israel, and she found herself... sort of in um, several conflicts, one with the editors of the feminist uh, radical news magazine RAT, R-A-T, where there was, you know, a big argument about uh, Israel. She took them to task when they called for the uh, elimination of Israel as a state. Uh, so Aviva Kanta was one of... Um, Several of the women that I talk about who were openly Zionist and friends uh, to Israel uh, by the end of the period, by the 1980s. Israel had become a subject of contention more than it had been at the beginning. Uh, Israel, since its founding, was always a subject of contention on the left, um, but I think it increased over time. And in my last chapter, I talk specifically about the three UN Women's Decade Conferences, 1975 to 85. There were three of them Mexico City, Copenhagen, and Nairobi, in which Uh, third world women, as they were called at the time, um, attacked Israel. Uh, Zionism was no friend they charged to the progressive causes, a little bit like the intersectionality uh, that we talk about today. If you were for the progressive movement and the liberation of women in the world, then you couldn't be a Zionist, you couldn't be for Israel. And the attacks against Israel and against Jews were Uh, loud, vicious, sometimes even violent, and that became a trigger for American women who had been silent and not even thinking of themselves in a a Jewish way, Jewish women, um, to come out and identify themselves as Jews. The most prominent was uh, Letty Cotton Pogrebin, who wrote an important article in Miss Magazine in June 1982, declaring herself no longer just a feminist, but a Jewish feminist, a feminist Jew.
0: Now you cover dozens of women and they're, they're so interesting. And some of them we know, like Shulamith Firestone, Susan Brown Miller, Adrian Rich. We're familiar with those women, but we're, there's a lot of less known women, which I thought were fascinating also, like Marilyn Webb, Blue Greenberg, Rebecca Alpert. They're not as uh, on the forefront in our minds, Um which were I, I found so many of them so interesting, uh, but can you t- uh, especially for me, Esther Ro- Rome um, was really interesting, and um, just her the way she just uh, was able to bring all kinds of things that we don't think could go together together, and in her own life. So, w- which of the women were, was most fascinating, or what was the most surprising woman that you discovered?
1: Oh, that's very hard to uh, pick one from Forty, and I suppose it's all in the eye of the beholder, who is well-known and who isn't. Uh, We talked a little bit, uh, you know, I think one of the things to me that was surprising are the things I found out about the well-known women that were surprising. You know, it goes in both directions. You mentioned Shulamith Firestone, uh, who a lot of people called the prime minister of women's liberation when she died. However, in 2012, alone uh, in an apartment, she hadn't been found for about a week. You know, she had already spent several decades uh, in decline because of what people uh, called her mental illness. What was not known about Shulam Firestone was the importance of religion and Judaism to her through these decades. And uh, so that was a surprising factor, a very tragic story Um that I uh, talk about. Um, So Ellen Willis, I don't know if she was somebody that is uh, very well known to you. Uh, She's a hero of my book. Uh, She's one of the New York intellectuals who has a fascinating story when it comes to Jewishness. Ellen Willis was the first rock critic, uh, cultural critic of the New Yorker in the in the uh, late 1960s, and she was a liberated woman. She was very concerned with, uh, you know, undoing sexual repression. And as I said, she was uh, interested in rock. She wrote about drugs. She had a famous article about Janice Joplin, she wrote a three-part three, uh, article in Rolling Stone magazine in the late 1970s that some journalists have said, uh, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but the best magazine article ever. And that, uh, that series was called Next Year in Jerusalem. And it was the story of how she struggled with her younger brother's conversion to ultra-orthodoxy. He became an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. He went to Jerusalem. He, like her, was a radical. She said, if I were a man, I would have been my brother. And in Jerusalem, he became, you know, uh, as I said, ultra-Orthodox. And she said, I don't understand how this could have happened. So Ellen... Uh, tried to figure it out, and, and part of her effort was to travel to Jerusalem to meet with men and women and rabbis there, including Rebetzin, rabbis' wives, and she wrote this extraordinary article in which she not only empathized with her brother, but this rock critic, uh, you know, sexual, you know, I wouldn't call her a libertine, but somebody who really championed free sexuality said, you know, if I was to stay, maybe I too would become. Orthodox, and she understood the draw of this religion, and she also uh, sympathized with the what she called the sexual freedom of Orthodox women. Very extraordinary, very extraordinary. This sort of uh, almost contradiction in this leading intellectual figure of New York radical life uh, sympathizing with with uh, Judaism.
0: Now, these women that you profile, uh, formed many activist groups all over, especially the Boston, New York, uh, Chicago, the ones you cover. We've got the Gang of Four, Bread and Roses, Red Stockings. But the most interesting to me was the Boston Women's Health Col- Book Collective because the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, obviously has had probably, I think in my mind, the greatest popular, uh, impact, um, you know, selling just amazing number of copies over the decades and i uh, and when you started talking you were, that chapter to me was the most fascinating because i didn't know that much about how that book came about and who was involved in it and then you've got a very it seemed like the Boston Women's Health Book Collective that that group of women was very family centered and oriented toward parenting and 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 you know childbirth and those kinds of things which seems to be, for some people's minds, would seem to be kind of not the radical women's position. So can you talk about that group? I thought, and and Esther Rome is part of that. Uh, She's in that group.
1: She is. uh, And it's a fascinating group, and there have been several books, wonderful books written about it, and many articles, none of which mentioned uh, that these women were not only white, But they, many of them were Jewish. And, you know, I was careful in writing about this because what does that mean to, you know, try and raise this uh, question, this issue uh, in talking about our bodies ourselves? So... um, First, on the the family orientation of the group, that is how they talk about themselves. They came out of the general women's liberation movement. When uh, Bread and Roses met, uh, the women of Bread and Roses were part of a larger conference that met at Emmanuel College in 1969. Most of these women were there, and uh, several of them were part of Bread and Roses at the beginning. So they came out of that uh, larger. Radical movement, and they began to talk about health issues. They were trying to put together. It's an interesting story. When they began, they wanted to put together a list of a positive list of the good doctors in Boston that women could go to, but they couldn't find any. <laughs> then they decided, well, maybe they needed to understand women's bodies themselves, and the rest is history. And 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 it really is. Um, but um, generally, they're a little bit older than the women of Bread and Roses and other women's liberation collectives. And some of them had started to have children. And and in fact, that's how they knew each other. They were part of uh, parent groups together. And so it was, you know, part of their orientation that they were concerned with uh, child rearing and with pregnancy and childbirth in different ways than some of the other groups. Um, And at least one of the women, one or two of them, uh, that I talked with, really talked about uh, not only a concern with family, but the kind of Jewish family values, specifically Jewish family values um, that they were raised with um, that were important in the collective. Um,
0: well, it seems like a lot of the things maybe of this group, uh, as I read it, I go, this is really not radical. I know that it's because we've, we've you know, we're decades removed from it. And a lot of these things that they were discussing at the time were radical, but for us today are sort of like, yes, women should know their bodies. And, th- you know, their book helped a lot of women understand um, how their bodies worked and made them less dependent upon male doctors. So uh, it's, th- I think that th- that's what struck me about it that what seemed radical at the time, which is hard to get our, our minds around from our
1: perspective today. Um, is now sort of... W- well, I think one of the things that should be said about our bodies ourselves, because I know uh, you know, uh, quite a number of these women today, is that they continue to evolve. The structure of the collective is much different today, and the uh, the issues that people are concerned about differ. But I think it's always on the cutting edge, you know, whether that has to do with, you know, pharmacology, whether it has to do with big government, you know, a lot of conflicting information in terms of women's bodies that's out there. And our bodies ourselves um, continues, those who are, you know, part of the larger group continue to track this and to help women make sense of it. But I think you're quite right. I mean, they were radical then. And certainly in terms of women's bodies, but Esther Rome and some of these other women, um, you know, what was said about them was in their own lifestyles, maybe they were traditional. Esther Rome's son talked about his mother, you know, he's, I called her a radical and he said, well, I wouldn't call her that. I'd call her at least in our home in the way we had to be home for Friday night dinner, the way, you know, the holidays were so important. You know, we were a traditional family, Um those uh are different spheres of life; they come together differently, and they did in different ways uh for all the women. I think what was important to me was that eight of the original large group of eleven or twelve were Jewish. And as opposed to some of the other groups that I talk about in my first women's liberation section, the women of our bodies ourselves recognized this and knew it a few years in, they didn't know it right away. But at one point, they looked around the group and said, Oh, my goodness, guess what, we have this in common. Um, And that was not the case with other groups.
0: Now, some of these groups um, survived for a while and had structures, organizational structures that they developed. And then you've got to, as, the, as these groups grow or morph or change and become more like like institutions, like the La the, Pazan the women, uh, there's a there's a co- disconnect between the founders, the original founders, and the staff. And part of it is that the staff becomes more diverse. You know, you've got African-American women and other women coming into uh, the staff situation. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the problems of uh, growing and being more expansive and including more women in their projects?
1: Well, I, I don't think I, I cover that in a comprehensive fashion in the book, because that is the story of women's liberation that has been told in different ways um, for different cities. And, and by the way, I think that's one of the exciting things about the scholarship of the last uh, five to 10 years and growing is the kind of diversification of the stories of women's liberation Uh, by race, by ethnicity, by city. We're getting the stories of women who are involved uh, differently in different cities. So I I don't think there's like one comprehensive story in our bodies ourselves. I think you're referring to um, the Boston issues where the founders were uh white, they weren't primarily white, they were white. And and over a period of time the staff uh diversified. There were those conflicts of um, you know, making room for a more diversified uh group of uh board and staff. Um and I think that challenge was met, not without some difficulties. Um and our bodies ourselves is, you know, has continued to change, but it is probably the longest lived uh, uh, sort of organization from this period. And, you know, one of the things we haven't said in our conversation that I would like to say, because I think it's really important, is that what distinguished radical feminism from liberal feminism and what really was the organizing principle for my book was the whole notion of the collective, that these women work together together in groups, they call themselves collectives, um, and we've talked about some of those, you know, that I focus on in, in Chicago, New York, and Boston. But they will. All over. And and on the Jewish side, too, we mentioned Ezra and Hashim, uh, which was a dozen women, and uh, then there was Chutzpah and Brooklyn Bridge. We didn't mention the Vildachais, which was a lesbian Jewish collective that I think was enormously important. But these women came together in small groups uh, that were often part of larger groups. Sometimes they weren't like the Vildachais, and it was in these circles of friendship and collectivity um, that they hope to create change. And over time, of course, the dynamics had to change.
0: Okay. Um, as uh, Jewish women came into feminism and embraced it and were very prominent there and they're also in, are going back to their, oftentimes, not always, but some of them will go back to their Jewish communities and they're beginning to bring their feminism into, the, into Jewish communities. How did feminism change Judaism and what were the effects of, of, of these women on
1: Jewish American life? That's a, a wonderful question. And in uh, word and word, word what the effects were enormous, and they changed Jewish American life uh, in very significant ways. Ezra and a small study group and change group, which came into being in 1972, was the first that challenged the conservative movement for putting women in second place. Um, And they kind of led the call to change, uh, including women in minions, in synagogue leadership positions, bringing women into the rabbinate, into uh, cantorial positions and so forth. And, uh, you know, within a decade, uh, women were rabbis. In some movements, they are now the majority of clergy. Um, And all these other demands um, have been met. It's not to say that there is full equality and there are numerous problems that remain um, that relate to gender equality. But if we look at Jewish religious life today, even within the Orthodox movement, we see significant change, a change in the communal sphere, uh, also happen maybe at kind of a slower pace, uh, but uh, that in terms of uh, organizations um, bringing women to positions of leadership, uh, that's been that's been happening as well. So that I'd say the younger generations today have a whole uh, panorama of female role models in the Jewish community that didn't exist 50 years ago. In fact, when uh, sometimes I've been out uh, speaking about this book and and some people ask me the question, uh, isn't it the case that change has come quicker uh, and without as much backlash to the Jewish world than it has to the larger American world? you know, look at the Me Too movement, look at, you know, other other kinds of issues. I don't know that that's true. Actually, I don't think that's true. But I will say that there are people who, you know, looking at what exists now in the Jewish world, you know, and, and looking at what existed 50 years ago, um, the change has been astonishing. Now we
0: also um, This also happened, of course, in Christianity, where feminism affected the whole realm of of Christian ideas about women and, and and more women ordained more women going to seminary and then you got Judith Plasco who was it was she was really into the theology of Judaism her her wasn't so much about the institutional but about the thinking the theology how we think about God and how we think about uh, the people of God and so she's very critically important uh in in theology, not only just I think, for Jewish theology, but also for Christian theology, because of the same root the same root. And um, so um, yeah, and I mean, she's, she really did make a huge contribution to how we imagine and think about God. So let me ask you, what has happened to these women? There's, what happened to them? I mean would they be, I, I think some of them became academics? Um, where are they? You're talking
1: about the forty in the book. Who you profiled? Uh, Well, this is a a moment when I can say that I'm I'm pleased to say that uh, the University of Michigan will be having a two-day conference about my book in about two weeks, and many, many of the women with thirty-six speakers: Judith Blasco, uh, Martha Acklesberg, will will be there. Letty Pogrebin, uh, many people. Including Heather Booth. I I raised the name of Heather Booth because she happens to be in in Boston uh, today and she's giving several lectures on how to organize to change our world. Um, And Heather Booth, there's a film about her. It's by Lily Rivlin. I think it may be called Changing the World or something like that. Where is she now? She's organizing. She spent 50 years organizing, as has Vivian Rothstein. Many of the women of our bodies ourselves are still involved in uh, these issues. Um, It's amazing the... Longevity of uh, the activism of these women. A lot have become writers and scholars, Linda Gordon, uh, Meredith Tax, um, amongst those who I talk about in in Chapter 3. Um, Susan Brown Miller and uh, Alex K. Chulman from New York in their 80s are still writing, still have things to tell us about feminism. So I am, uh, that was one of the surprising factors to me, the Vivacity, the commitment, and the record of achievement. These women did not fade away. Um, I also disagree with the idea that the movement faded away. The movement is out there, and they are out there, and they uh, have made significant change. And they're still doing it and telling us how to do it. So your
0: your book is going to change changes the history of. Radical feminism, what do you think is the, con- the main contribution that you're making to the whole the whole narrative the whole like, understanding of radical feminism
1: well I hope I'm diversifying it I think that leaving out the story of Jewish women uh, meant that we didn't have a full picture and by putting Jewish women in. We're able to, uh, you know, see it with different eyes, to understand diversity in different ways, to understand how Jewishness is itself a diverse. Phenomenon. It's not. The, it wasn't the same thing then, and it certainly isn't the same thing today. When if we we talk about Jewish women today, um, there there are uh, many uh, more Jewish women of color who are participating in Jewish feminist groups, and um, so I I think we have um, a fuller picture, a more capacious view of feminism.
0: Well, Joyce, you have been very generous with your time. This is a great stopping place thank you thank you so much Lillian I've really enjoyed this and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of new books and gender studies this is your host Lillian Barger